This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 30th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Substantial criminal justice reform, particularly in federal sentencing, has a better chance of getting through Congress this year than in years past. But there's still a sticking point between Republicans and Democrats who want reform, and that is criminal intent. Kevin Ring is vice president for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. We spoke today. Why does somebody who worked for John Ashcroft, uh, former governor uh, of Missouri, former attorney general, uh, why is somebody who wrote mandatory minimum statutes that uh, ended up becoming statutes, why are you working for Families Against Mandatory Minimums today? Well, I would say I'm not the same person I was back then, but at the time, I was like many conservative Hill staffers who thought more punishment was always the answer. And in writing criminal laws or in facing criminal threats, and at the time, methamphetamine was, this is the early 90s, mid-90s, became the big threat. And after the crack boom, then methamphetamine swept the Midwest. Senator Ashcroft represented Missouri. He decided in 2000 he wasn't going to run for president. He was going to run for re-election. And so we had to show that we were sensitive to Missouri's concerns about methamphetamine. And as a counsel on the Judiciary Subcommittee, I proposed that we draft a law that increased penalties for meth so that they were equal to crack, which were then at the time were the toughest mandatory penalties. And so we thought this was as big a threat as the crack, so let's do this. Um, of course, almost just by proposing it, it passes because no one's going to stand in front of that whenever you have a looming crisis like that. So I'm a you know drug warrior. I'm you know a young Hill staffer who uh, doesn't even know what he doesn't know about the system and the process and in passing tough on crime laws. And I had been my whole time on the Hill. And it wasn't until I had more time to reflect, I later became under federal scrutiny and um, uh, was prosecuted for my conduct as a lobbyist that I realized that judges play an important role in our system and that I did not want to leave all the power in the prosecutor's hands. And so that began this process of evolution where I said, um, if I think judges are important and as neutral arbiters in a adversarial criminal justice system, I certainly am glad that's the case when it comes to sentencing. Because of course, as a white collar defendant, I wasn't subject to a mandatory minimum. So at least I had a judge who had some discretion when it came to sentencing me. But just the experience, um, even from the very beginning, I realized once the prosecutors decided that I was a bad guy and they were going to do anything against me, I've, I've realized firsthand why it's so important to have a judge. And why did you go to jail? I went to jail because I was convicted of a few counts of what is known as honest services fraud, which is a junior varsity form of bribery. Um, it's, it's, it's bribery light is what the court was calling it at the time. Um, and the the accusation was essentially that I gave members of Congress and their staffs meals and tickets to ball games, um, you know, entertain them. I schmoozed. I lobbied, essentially, and that in return for my schmoozing, they did acts that favored my clients, either voted on bills or introduced bills or took steps to, to help my clients. And that in itself was considered bribery, and even though... The Justice Department conceded, yes, we realize everybody in this town does that. We have the opportunity now, because we've seized all these emails, to change the relationship between lobbyist and lawmaker through this prosecution. 
So rather than wait for Congress to change the law, they decided they'd start prosecuting these cases. And I was one, and I went to trial um, because I believed not that I didn't do these things. The facts were not in dispute. Everything that was argued, I did. I just didn't think I had the intent to trade acts for favors. and um, Which is one of the problems of this whole issue of honest services fraud. It is. And it's, um, it's easy for me to say because I lived it for a number of years. But you know, it's problematic for public officials and lobbyists. It's absolutely problematic at a private sector level where I have a brother who's a partner at a law firm. You know, he has a client coming into town, you know, a big, a big corporation who gives them a lot of business. Can he take them to a baseball game? I mean, can he wine and dine them as, as, as their contract is up for renewal? Or is he trying to unduly influence them with gifts and appeal to his personal, you know, sort of side instead of his professional judgment? So it's a dangerous statute. And I was caught in it. I gave them the fat to pinch, however, because I was practicing lobbying as a lot were then, and I was, you know, profligate in uh, in giving out meals and tickets because I thought that's what we did, and so it's a it's a very vague, dangerous statute. Justice Scalia was one of the few who got it early on, called attention to it. I they, believe one of his in one of his opinions on on exactly that subject, he basically argued that. Anybody who calls in sick and goes to a ball game could find themselves charged with honest services fraud. Yeah, and that's and it, it, the way the prosecutors were reading the statute. That's absolutely true. Um, he didn't prevail, and in a which was interesting in a sign of where we were headed on the Obamacare decisions. He, uh, Kennedy, and Thomas voted to strike down the honest services statute, and Justices Alito and. Roberts voted to uphold it and said, "Well, we'll narrow the statute, but let's not strike it down as unconstitutional," which was, you know, bad news for me as it came between my two trials, um, but also I thought uh, an omen of where we were headed. And so the statute survived. First, I was tried, uh, hung jury on all the counts, evenly divided. They tried me again a year later, and uh, I was convicted of half the counts. And so, um, and so I appealed it all the way through to the Supreme Court. Right now on Capitol Hill and. Shout out to Julie Stewart, a former Catoite who started Families Against Mandatory Minimums, has done yeoman's work uh, helping to reform that system. This year, 2016, seems to be the first year where a substantial reform of sentencing is possible uh, and, and, and likely to, to some extent. One of the sticking points between uh, the sort of conservative constitutionalist Republicans and the liberal Democrats who otherwise both sort of want the same thing with regard to sentencing reform is this idea of mens rea. That is, did you have a criminal mind when you uh, engaged in whatever acts that you've been charged with? Why is that a sticking point between those two groups? You know, I have no idea why it is. And I wasn't around during the old fights. I don't remember this being an issue when I was a counsel on the Hill. But to hear others tell it, liberals always understood this issue, or they used to, that they understood that intent was, you know, an important part of the equation. And now environmental groups have convinced them that this is a get-out-of-jail-free card for polluters and corporations. And so for political reasons, certainly not principled ones, 
they are opposing uh, mens rea reform. Now, to be fair, I don't think there's been as much education done on this issue as there have been on sentencing issues and some other discovery issues and prosecutorial discretion issues. But this is one that the parties should be united on. Everyone should find it very easy to get behind the proposition that you actually have to have a criminal intent and an overt act to commit an offense. And for some reason, and like I said, I think it's political. I don't think there's any principle at all involved. It, it, it's unfortunate, and I, I hope it's not the case, that reforming sentencing that has uh, harmed disproportionately uh, disadvantaged groups that um, otherwise disenfranchised groups, people who are dissed, broadly speaking, uh, would have their sentences be longer or would not get reform that is uh, very much needed on sentences relating to drugs, uh, consensual crimes, things like that, over an issue of whether or not uh, people need to know that what they're doing is illegal. Yeah. And you know what? I, I don't even see them as that disconnected. I mean, conspiracy law as, as it exists today is so broad that we deal with a lot of cases with drug offenders where somebody may have been doing, you know, selling drugs for a month or shorter, a uh, very limited amount, but they're ultimately held responsible for a conspiracy that lasts several years because they don't have anyone to turn in and to cooperate against. And so they're held responsible for all sorts of activities and um, things that go on that they have no idea about. And to me, it's very relatable to mens rea. So it's not necessarily that they didn't have a criminal intent uh, at all. They might have known they were doing something wrong, but they certainly didn't think they were involved in some large-scale operation. They might have been a street corner dealer. But when the prosecutors come in, they're all on the hook for everything that was sold. So in some ways, to me, liberals should understand the problem of the government trying to assign responsibility for conduct that you might not have intended. And that it should be a very easy thing for both sides to come together and say, both in the context of mens rea, you have to know what you're doing, and in conspiracy, we're going to wind that back so that you're only on the hook for the things you actually did or knew about. So again, it seems like there should be common ground here, but you know, it's Washington and just doesn't work that of course, way. <laughs> of course, we're talking about the federal government, which yes. uh, the feds house a small minority of this of the federal of prisoners that are being held in the United States. Right. I spoke with Robert Alt of the Buckeye Institute yeah. in Ohio, and of course, Ohio reformed mens rea yes. in a very substantial way. And uh, I, I may get the details wrong, but I think the idea was that if your uh, criminal penalty lacks a mens rea requirement, it is void, Yeah, which could easily be done at the federal level. But what reforms would you suggest for states more broadly on the idea of sentencing that, if not, if not low-hanging fruit, something mm -hmm. that uh, is important? Well, of course, I think the biggest issue is to address mandatory minimum sentencing laws. And in some states, they've outright repealed them. Michigan, um, repealed its mandatory minimums, thanks in large part to Julie and Pham's efforts in 1998-2002. And the lesson that other states can draw from that experience and some others is that even after repealing their mandatory minimums, the crime went down. Violent crime went down. Property crime went down, which is not to say that one caused the other. But the burden was on the other side. The other side, who's incarcerating people for long sentences, had the burden to say, we need these policies to keep us safe. 
And that's just simply not the case. And so, you know, all the data collected over the last 30 years from Pew and other groups has shown lower incarceration rates do not lead to more crime, especially when in reducing your incarceration, you are investing in other things, either more police, more prosecutors, or programs, rehabilitation, drug treatment, that actually works and helps people reduce their level of reoffending. So we'd like to see mandatory minimums repealed. Short of that, we just released a report that Greg Duburn, our state policy director, authored uh, jointly with ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, that calls for adoption of a safety valve. We have one in federal law. And a safety valve is essentially um, a list of criteria by which a judge can get out from under a mandatory minimum. So it may be written in different ways, but essentially, if a defendant is a low-level offender, it's not the leader or manager of conspiracy, doesn't use violence, if certain criteria are met, a judge can ignore the mandatory minimum and give a more rational, proportionate sentence. So. Where the political will does not exist today to repeal mandatories, we'd like to see this safety valve passed. And so, again, Alec and Pham have written this report. We're seeing this adopted elsewhere. Maryland just passed a safety valve. North Dakota passed a safety valve. It's starting to catch on. And I think what we're going to find in all these states is that public safety is, is just fine, if not improved by not wasting resources on incarceration. Many of the people that Pham uh, deals with uh, I have heard them say on numerous occasions, I don't know if it's it's typical, but it's uh, at least not uncommon for people who are sentenced under mandatory minimums to have the judge in the case apologize to them yeah. for uh, being compelled by a law that they can't do anything about mm-hmm. to put them away for 5, 10, 20, 50 years. Yeah. We just heard that again a couple weeks ago in Nebraska, a federal judge said, he had to give these two defendants 10-year sentences, said it isn't what I would do, but I have no choice. My hands are tied. And that is, that's a shame because in that case, you're talking about a judge who either sat through a trial or accepted plea deals where the prosecution, the defense, the probation office all gave him all the information, everything that could be relevant about the defendant, his crime, his background. And he would use all of that to craft an appropriate sentence. And instead, he's saying, I can't. I mean, my hands are tied by a law passed by a Congress that sat 20 years ago and knows nothing about the individual circumstances of your case. But they're going to have control over this. And that it, it's just so distorted to me. And I think the idea that politicians from previous generations are setting policy or setting individual sentences in cases across the country makes no sense. Kevin Ring is vice president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.